Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech in general. So today we're actually going to listen to a classic episode. I know it's not Friday and when we typically listen to classic episodes, but I feel like this one's getting super topical again, which is about electronic voting machines or EVMs. Uh, I voted this morning in Georgia and had to go through and use an EVM. Now, unlike what uh, the situation was back in 2016, when this episode you're about to hear originally published, Georgia has changed slightly. Back in 2016, the voting machines did not produce any sort of paper record. So there was no sort of receipt to show that the vote you were casting on the electronic machine was being reflected as the vote that was actually being recorded. Georgia has since changed that. Now, when you go through and you make your selections, It sends a paper ballot to be printed on a machine, which you then can look at, verify that, in fact, the information that you put on the electronic display is reflected on that paper ballot. But then you'd bring that paper ballot over to another machine and you scan the paper ballot in. So now you have a scanning machine that takes the paper from the electronic machine and scans that which arguably just creates a different point of failure. But no system is perfect. The question we have to ask ourselves is, does this system provide more confidence in the overall process of voting than the previous system? I would say yes, because at least there was that physical copy. Not that you got to keep it. You actually could not leave with your paper ballot. So that's something. You didn't get a copy of it or anything like that. Um, But... I think it is a step in the right direction. However, I have a much deeper conversation with Mr. Ben Bolin of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know and Ridiculous History and many other things. And so we sat down to talk about the scary world of EVMs. This one is part one. And in our next episode on Monday, we will listen to part two. And I hope all of you are well. I hope you're all doing what you can to make the world a better place and uh, yeah, I'll see you on the other side. Hey, Jonathan, uh, thanks for having me on the show. And hello, Tech Stuff audience. Uh, I was really excited when you brought up this uh, topic and asked if I, if I wanted to hang out with you on it. However, before we go any further, I've got to ask, are you okay, man? <laughs> it's been a long week, Ben. <laughs> it's been a long week, and it's been a weird day. This, did, this day did not unfold the way we first imagined it would, or at least not for me. Too true. Uh, and also, I figured that I needed to be really like up and upbeat and excited and happy before we go into this topic, because I guarantee you <laughs> it cannot sustain itself as we talk about this. Also, uh, you're going to hear some papers being shuffled around, folks, and that's because uh, my computer decided that it was no longer going to connect to the wireless network once mm-hmm. I took it away from my docking station. I think I figured out what the sequence of events was that caused it to do Oh, yeah? That. Yeah, which largely involves being docked, removing the wire, Wi-Fi, uh, turning the Wi-Fi uh, adapter off because I was getting blips, mm-hmm. and then removing it from the docking station without enacting, you know, without enabling the Wi-Fi again, 
And now it won't do anything. So I just turned the computer off and I'm using paper notes, which uh, I understand are a thing. And sometimes, how apropos, my friend, because sometimes people will argue that uh, using paper-based documentation is more efficient or at least less prone to error than electronic documentation, such as, you know, uh, notes we might share on a laptop. Well, it certainly uh, fixes things in a more permanent form, right? Mm -hmm. Because with electronic files, I don't know if you know this, Ben, Mm -hmm. but you can sometimes go in and change stuff. What? But if you printed something on a piece of paper, it's a lot harder to change the thing you printed on the piece of paper without it being noticeable. Now, you can change it in electronic format and print a new thing. Malarkey. Poppycock. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't wish to bamboozle you. I am, <laughs> I am no flimflam man. Um, so, yeah, today we're specifically talking, and, and you know from the title of the podcast, we're mm-hmm. talking about uh, uh, voting machines today, electronic voting machines specifically, and what... It is about electronic voting machines that have certain people kind of talking about uh, security, uh, transparency, that kind of stuff. And here in the U.S., we are hurtling toward an election, uh, kicking and screaming all the way, as is typical every few years in the U.S. I mean, especially when it's a presidential election, which we have every four years. Uh, and so I thought it was really important for us to kind of talk about this. And, of course, Ben, as a host of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, there are a lot of conspiracy theories that surround voting in general, not just electronic voting machines, mm-hmm. but the whole process. Yeah, yeah, right? it's true. There are a there are quite a few uh, things that would be called conspiracy theories. There are also quite a few very valid criticisms or observations absolutely of, about the nature of the voting system everything from the nuts and bolts of the technology to the way technology disrupts existing legislative systems to uh just the organizational stuff you know the the uh question that a lot of a lot of you guys probably have out there ladies and gentlemen is stuff like why was Ross Perot, the last third party candidate to make it to the, you know, the big kids table of debates. Right. Actually, and actually getting put onto ballots. Right. On most states. Right. Or another great question that I hear all the time is why the heck do we still have an electoral college? Mm-hmm. If we've, if we've evolved beyond the point where a bunch of very wealthy white landowners have decided that really we shouldn't give complete control to the hoi polloi when it <laughs> comes to picking our leaders, we should have a, a protective layer in between. The dirty masses and the enlightened leaders. Why the um, quotidian can't even appreciate a cool <laughs> mint julep. That's true. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I hereby recognize the 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 esteemed representative from the state of Virginia. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a that's okay. So that's a that's a great point. And before we get too far into it, one of the most salient or applicable. Uh, quote unquote conspiracy theories about elections revolves around the idea that elections have been fixed retroactively or miscounted, whether intentionally or accidentally. Sure. 
by uh, a machine or the people in charge of the software running the machine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are are big questions, and we're going to talk about all of those. And in order to really get a full understanding of where we are today, I think it always helps to have a quick rundown of how we got to where we are, right? Mm -hmm. I love to do this on Tech Stuff where – even if I'm going to talk about specific technology, I tend to go back and say, well, here's here's how we got there historically. Um, so voting's been around for a really long time, whether whether you're talking about like a, from an official capacity, like you go back to like the the, the Greeks and mm-hmm. their their voting uh, or you just talk about, you know, small groups deciding where they're going to, you know, what animal are we going to kill for tonight's meal? Mm-hmm. We had we had Mastodon last night. Come on. Yeah, let's. Let's branch out. Uh, um, but uh, well before Survivor ever took to the airwaves, we've had voting. And um, for a long time, we would tabulate these votes manually. You just have someone who would either just count up all the votes if you did some sort of voting, like through stones, like the white stone or the black stone to mm-hmm. vote on something. Yeah. Or very often voting was done in public. Where you didn't, you know, it was no secret ballot. You declared your vote in front of people. Which, yeah, or nay. Yeah. And that, um, I mean, it clearly has some advantages in the sense that uh, you have verifiable votes, right? Sure. It has some disadvantages in that if you hold an unpopular opinion in your particular region, mm-hmm. you might find yourself ostracized from the larger community because you voiced that. You may become a target. In yes. Fact. Yes. Uh, I actually had a conversation with someone this morning about how. Uh, they they had suggested we move to a, a an a time where we would be able to assign votes to specific people so that for verification purposes. And I said that's a terrible idea. And the reason it's terrible is because it favors the majority and it punishes the minority. Right? Mm-hmm. If you are in the minority opinion and you vote your conscience, like you you are not going to be cowed into voting the majority just because all these other people want you to, then you stand, you know, a victim. You, you're vulnerable to the majority who may punish you for your, your choice to, uh, to vote your conscience. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or, or you might just feel pressured to change your vote so that you keep your, you, yourself and your family safe. So secret ballots, I think, are really important. Uh, they actually came officially to the scene pretty late, um, especially when you're talking about standardized ballots. Those didn't become a thing until the mid-19th century. So 1856 was when we saw the first standardized ballots, meaning ballots issued by the government Uh with the candidates uh, uh, arranged in whatever order they had deemed was appropriate. I don't know if they went alphabetically or how they arranged it, but the government had come to a, a decision on here's how we're going to present the ballot. Um, it's standard for everybody. And that government was Australia. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't the UK, of course. It wasn't the US, which nope. a lot of people would assume. Yeah. Now, there had been secret ballots in both the UK and the US, mm-hmm. but this was a standardized approach. This was is, the new normal. Yeah. This is where you're saying everyone's getting the same sheet of paper to mm-hmm. vote on, as opposed to if you went into a voting precinct in one part of the United States uh, for, let's say, the presidential election, and then went to a voting precinct in a totally different state, the ballots could look dramatically different right. from one another and have a com- have completely different presentation. Like you could just imagine, let's say that you're going through a corrupt precinct, uh-huh. and the candidate that they all want to win is in nice, big, bold print. 
And then the other candidates are in teeny tiny print, mm-hmm. and you can barely see them. Like that would be unfair. Obviously, you would you would, sure. you would say like I, I detect a sense of bias. So this was Australia in the mid nineteenth century. Yep. I guess then the best way to organize the candidates would be by their crime in alphabetical <laughs> order. Right. As, <laughs> I'm so as, sorry. I'm as so always, sorry. Australia. As always, we love to poke fun at Australia for getting its start <laughs> as a, uh, as a, as a penal colony. Well, I mean, clearly the Aborigines have been there forever, but, right, but right. You know, from the, the European Europeans. standpoint, Hey, but before we get too cocky, Ben, we live in Georgia, a state that was a penal colony. That's true. Debtors. Do we get a pass for that? Yeah. Cause we, cause, cause Georgia was a debtor. Prison, essentially. Mm-hmm. If you've ever been in Georgia, you can understand how how when Europeans got here, they first thought, "Yeah, this is where we want to put bad people." <laughs> so, so the uh, the Australian state yeah. would create these out of, I guess, taxpayer money. Yep. Yeah, it was, a, and that was a big deal, right? Like yeah. the, the decision that because anything the government does, you know, any product that they're going to make, any anything they produce. It, the money for that comes from taxes. I mean, that's where governments get their money. So, you know, you're not going to the Australian government gift shop and buying a whole bunch of T-shirts and that money goes to making <laughs> making ballots. Uh, but once this was established, then it quickly caught uh, – I was going to say cat, caught fire, but that's hard to talk about when you're talking about paper ballots. Yeah. It got popular. Um, it was adopted throughout the world. <laughs> and so by the late 19th century – so the late 1800s, just inventors, a few decades later. yeah, just a couple of decades later, inventors were already beginning to experiment with ways to create machines for voting, uh, things like uh, using punch cards so that you could tabulate the data really quickly, mm-hmm. and you know, because especially as populations grow, and as you open up the vote to more eligible voters, as you make more people eligible, true, yeah, you know, keep in mind this is the same period where we start to see. Uh, uh, m- Various minority populations uh, uh-huh. end up getting the right to vote. That increases your voting population. We see women get the right to vote. That increases uh-huh. your voting population. Um, being able to count those votes quickly becomes really important because you don't want to hold up like you, you don't want everyone waiting like we voted three weeks ago. When are we going to find out who won? You don't want that to happen. Right. So there were a lot of uh, experiments and ways to tabulate votes more quickly. And also the idea was that this would be more reliable than a human, like less likely to make an error. Less prone to uh, less prone to uh, user error. Yeah. Or, or fraud or, or fraud. fraud. You know, you, you can't bribe. A tabulation machine to give you incorrect results. You could program it to do that, but, right. <laughs> but we'll get into that but a little bit later. Um, now, even though people were working on it in the late 1800s, it would be another half century before you actually started to see some of these punch card systems make their way into voting booths. Uh, it just wasn't ready yet. Um, and then we get into the first actual voting machines, and we get to a man by the name of Henry W. Spratt. He sounds like a, like a limey. He is, or he was. Can I say limey on the air? Is that okay? Yeah, I mean, I, we can beep it out. <laughs> it's just going to sound like I said something worse. The English blackguard. Um, <laughs> he was a, an Englishman, uh, mm-hmm. and he received a U.S. patent for a push-button voting machine back in 1875. And so imagine that you have a column of buttons, okay? Uh, and each button corresponds to a choice for a vote, for a single vote. Now, it's just a, a column. Or it could be arranged as a row. It depends on how you yeah. build it. But it's a single row or a single column. And uh, you might have 
three buttons that are activated because you have three choices that you could choose from. You would choose and then that's it. Uh, you, you only had that one, that one option because, uh, it only had the one row or the one column. But, oh, okay. I see. So, so you like, in other words, like it, it, when we go in for an election, frequently we have multiple, uh, positions or, or, um, issues that we're voting on. Right. Look, not just, uh, the president or maybe a state rep or a state senator, but mm-hmm. also, uh, comptroller, uh, well, and then, and, council person. And people in the actual House of Representatives and the U.S. Right. Senate. So right. we, you've got multiple positions that could be open. Well, you would need to have multiple rows or multiple columns so that you could make that uh, kind of vote. And in fact, we did see those follow. But in 1875, we saw that first push button patent. Um, that and several variations that follow were all purely mechanical devices. So no electricity here. These are all working from like levers and joints and uh, hinges. And so it's actual just pure mechanical action, which is great. Um, but also problematic because things can break down. Things can jam. Like if you've sure. ever used an old typewriter, sometimes, you know, the keys can jam. Same sort of thing could happen. I mean, especially with the more complex voting machines. More moving parts creates just simply more opportunities for something to go wrong. Exactly. More points of failure. Yeah. And so, uh, uh one of my favorite inventions that came out fairly early was a lever that you would pull in order to close the curtain behind you. Now, Ben, I didn't even ask you this, but um, uh, have you, for all of your voting experiences, have you only used the uh, direct recording type, the the computer monitor types, or have you ever used a voting booth like? Uh, with I have stuff? used a booth very, very early in my political career. Yeah. <laughs> which yeah. I think voting will count as my political career. I was to say before you burnt all the bridges. And, before yeah. I burnt the bridges. And became an inspiration for several characters on House of Cards. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I was uh, in, in the very early days before this was instituted, I did get to, uh, experience like the older paper-based yeah. voting. I, I did, um, I did the old, uh, lever voting machines. Yeah, yeah. They used to be, that used to be in Georgia before 2002. I'll talk about that more in a second, mm-hmm. but. Um, the way that they, that they typically would work, cause this, once this innovation was introduced, it was adopted pretty much universally. Uh, you would have a lever that you would use to close the curtain behind you, and only then would the other levers become active, where you would be able to cast your vote. Yeah. So it was great because it meant that you were pretty confident that your vote would be done secretly. No one's going to look in on you because before you could even get started, you had to close the curtain. Mm-hmm. You didn't have an option to vote with the curtain open. And uh, it, typically the way it would work is that there'd be a mechanism that would just lock all the other levers in place until that curtain lever was activated. And oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. It was really ingenious. It was, again, pretty simple. Even when you get to electromechanical voting booths later on, it still followed the same principle. And I thought that was really neat. Now, those voting booths were an, incredibly heavy uh, and complex. And like I said, they would break down occasionally, which obviously that's a big problem. They sound positively steampunk, if we're being honest. They, yeah, if you were to ever like look in the back of one, you'd be pretty impressed. It would look kind of like a... Uh, piano got in the fight with a, a, a you know, like a, a copper store or something. It was pretty cool. That is such a beautiful description. That might be your best writing yeah. this week. No, well, like a piano a, got in a fight, fight with, with a, a copper, copper store. store. Yeah, and then you that's you there. You got a lever action uh, voting machine. 
1881, Anthony C. Berenick received a U.S. patent for a push-button voting machine that was more suited for American elections. This one had the multiple rows and columns, mm-hmm. so it was more advanced than the, than Spratt's. And then in 1889, Jacob H. Myers patented the first lever voting machine, also known as a direct recording vote machine, uh, which used mechanical levers to indicate votes, and results were counted by the machine itself. And then what would happen is he would record the results. A human being would record the results from each machine for it to be uh, uh, tabulated in the grand totals. Um, and Myers had said that the approach had major advantages over older methods in that it could prevent ballot stuffing because each person could only use the machine once before it had to be reset. So you mm-hmm. couldn't vote and then just go ahead and vote again and vote again and, and then just keep on creating, uh, 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 you know, false votes for whatever candidate you chose. You could only do it the one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it would have to be reset for the next voter, which meant that, you know, it was a little labor intensive because you had to have someone there to reset the machine. But at the same time, it kept the voting process honest. Um, and then uh, the first time Meyer's machine was actually used, I remember it was made in 1889, was 1892. So it didn't take long. Wow. Um, yeah. And again, there still was a weak point here. Uh, if you had someone whose job it was to write down the results, they could fudge the results from the machine. And right? let's also point out that here in the late 19th century, yep, post-Civil uh, War, at least in the U.S. Yes, uh, late 19th century is post-Civil War, even today. Yeah, yeah, even today, uh, I'm just saying with with that having occurred so recently, corruption was rife and rampant. Oh, uh, yeah, especially in like there's certain areas of the United States that have almost a comical uh, association with election fraud. Chicago, Chicago being, being the, the big like, one, the like, big one. Huh? Like you'll hear stories about Chicago elections that are. Uh, amazing, like, like, like how 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 many people turn out to vote in an election, including ones who haven't been alive for like ten years, right? Um, Boss tweed kind of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, at any rate, the the this didn't erase the ability for uh, some tampering to happen, right? But again, it would be the humans. Ideally, the machines count all the votes as they were cast. But the humans whose job it was to transcribe that could fudge if they wanted, if they if they were so inclined. Not that they were allowed to, but they could have. Right, right. Um, because there's a hierarchy of reporting here. Yes. Right? One person tabulates each machine after each vote goes to a precinct. Precinct tabulates it goes to a, a higher authority of yep. a regional sort. And mm-hmm. then on and on and on. Up to the national level, yeah. And just like you said earlier, the more moving parts – we have in a mm-hmm. mechanism, whether an organization or a machine, the more potential points of failure we have. Right. And and this, again, kind of leads into the thinking that would eventually develop into the electronic voting machine. The idea being that, hey, if we can remove some of these uh, steps, then perhaps we can end up uh, having a more accurate reflection of the public's intent. Right. Which yeah. that's a very honorable thing. But sure. uh, it gets a little... A little muddy in and practice. We still have a ways to go before yeah, we, we get do. there. So 1930, lever voting machines had become a common sight throughout uh, elections in U.S. cities. Most major cities had these by 1930. Um, in 1962, Kern City, California, uh, would use optical scan ballots for the first time. So these are like those standardized tests like the SAT. I assume they're still like that. I haven't been in high school 
in a really long time. But, you know, the kind of test where you have to fill in the bubble all the yeah. way to indicate your choice, that's what we're talking about, optical scans. So you've got your uh, ballot, mm-hmm. and you fill in the ballot as directed uh, in order to make your choices. And then those are later put through a scanning machine. It's essentially a, like a camera. It just detects where the the dots are. Right. And then it can tell who you voted for based upon the position of the dots. And uh, obviously this means that you have to have uh, very standardized papers so that they can load in properly, be read by the machine correctly, so that you don't get misidentified votes, that sort of stuff. And you have to also have the seemingly unnecessary but in practice crucial instructions for every voter on what we actually mean when we say filling in a bubble. Yes. You know, no check marks, no X. You have to fill it in completely. Right. All the stuff you may remember from your SATs, ACTs, or LSATs. Right. Right. Yeah, because if you don't fill it in correctly, if you don't fill in that bubble fully, then it may not be counted. Mm -hmm. And obviously every person who goes to the trouble to vote – Wants his or her vote to matter, right? Yeah. I mean, we don't we don't just stand there just for the fun of it. Um, maybe the first time, but after that, you're like, well, I'm doing my civic duty. It's not my civic. Oh boy, let's go and do this. <laughs> oh, so, re- remind me at some point when we get to the contemporary area. I have a great voting story for you. Okay, but um, but right now we've got the scanners, and then uh, we move into something that's a little bit of local history for you and I. Yeah, 1964, Fulton and DeKalb counties in Georgia used punch cards and computer tally machines for the first time in an election. Uh, Fulton and DeKalb counties are really the two main counties of Atlanta. Uh, if you look at Atlanta on a map, especially if you look up the term Metro Atlanta. There are a whole bunch of counties that are in that. A something. Pantheon, There's yeah. like 13 or something. It's mm-hmm. crazy at this yeah. point. But but the two big ones that make up what we what we who live in Atlanta think of as Atlanta are Fulton and DeKalb. Um, and so, uh, in fact, I I think uh, Ben, I think you you might live in one, and I live in the other. Uh, that is true. I'm currently a resident of Fulton County, though for a long time I was over there with you in DeKalb. Yeah, and and to be fair. Uh, I think only a couple of miles separate Ben and Ben's yeah, house and my, my house. So we're right there on the border of mm-hmm. the two counties. Uh, anyway, those two counties became the first to use punch cards and computer tally machines for the first time. And that would quickly get adopted by a lot of other places. In 1965, Joseph P. Harris would patent the Votomatic punch card system. And that would require voters to use like a, a stylus-like pen to punch holes into a ballot. This became yeah. very common, too. And it was on a, sort of a template thing, right? Like it would slide into this thing with the choices. Yes. And it would pop the yeah. one that you chose. Almost like a frame that would yeah. hold the paper taut. Yeah, I remember those. And also, I want to point out, this is one of my favorite eras of American history for gadgets. It's the time when everything was legitimized by adding Omatic at the end. It was right. their digital or their organic, their yeah. buzzword. Yeah, know? yeah. So if you look at any of the cafeterias from back then, mm-hmm. there were a lot of the like the serve omatic or whatever, and they yeah. they tend to be, uh, you know, like a, a series of windows, and you would put coins into a slot, and you would be able to open up one of the windows and get your, you know. The ham sandwich that was made seven hours ago. Mm-hmm. If you really, mm, yeah. Peace stole my heart. Or just a jar of eggs. Yep. yep. <laughs> Man, those were the days, right? Ben and I have more to say about electronic voting machines. But before we get to that, let's take a quick break. So, so yeah, this... 
this is something uh, that has an important difference, though, right? Because the while the act here was just relatively simple human technology, a person popping a stylus yeah. into a piece of paper, uh, how did they count this? Again, you would put it through a tabulation machine. Mm-hmm. Typically, uh, you you would do this, again, using light to detect where the, the punched hole was. Uh, this also leads us to another issue in American uh, elections later on, the the dreaded hanging chads, but we'll get there. We'll talk about that. Um, but but it does it does open up the opportunity for tabulation errors only because if the piece of paper that you are punching out isn't completely free of the uh, ballot, like if it doesn't break off from the ballot, yeah, then it can it can uh, obscure that hole, and a tabulation device could think that you made no choice whatsoever for that particular. Uh, vote, whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, 1974, that was the first patent for a direct recording electronic voting machine, or DRE. Uh, these are also known as electronic voting machines, EVMs. They're essentially computers. They're computer right. terminals. Uh, and it was first used in 1975, and the first one that was used was called the Video Voter. Voter, voter, voter. Yeah. Now, typically these days, uh, you have an electronic display that shows you the ballot, an electronic version of the ballot. And then you use some form of interface to make your choice. Uh, it might be buttons. So it might be a physical button that you have to press that corresponds to a choice you see on the screen. Or it may be a touch screen uh, in some cases where you, you know, your, your choices pop up. You press the screen. It activates and your vote is uh, is reflected on what you see on the screen. Uh, at that point, a couple different things could happen. Uh, the vote could just be recorded electronically in memory, and then at the end of the day, uh, what the the precinct folks will do is remove the memory from each device and then send that over to a centralized tabulation area, mm-hmm. and then the results would be collected there. Uh, or it may also print a paper record so that you have a hard copy to compare against the electronic ones. Not all. EVMs have paper trails. In fact, a lot do not, which is problematic. We'll get more into that. And that sort of varies uh, location to location. Yeah, not even not even state to state, but within within a state, you could have one area, uh, one precinct where there's a paper trail and one where there's not. Uh, this is largely because in the United States, uh, the decision on what sort of machine you're using is is made at the local level. It's not federally mandated, right? The federal mandate is that you must have a system in place for people to vote. You got, you got to have that. Somehow. Somehow, yeah. right? But beyond that, it, it ends up being a decision made on the local level. And there's been a lot of arguments about who should foot the bill for these systems. Should it be a state-level thing? Should it be regional? Should it be federal? And uh, this is why we get a lot of disparity across the United States when it comes to different ways to cast a vote on mm-hmm. an election year. Um, in 2000, uh, this was a big, big year. This was the year that really started to change things here in the U.S. Here we go. Yeah, this is uh, the year when uh, Al Gore was running against uh, uh, George W. Bush, and um, it was a very close race throughout the United States. But very close. Particularly in Florida, which was seen as a state that was going to decide everything, right? And also, uh, to add to the allegations and the controversy here, the uh, vote in Florida at the time could be influenced by the governor. Who, who was brother 
to W. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you had um, you had polls like the actual surveys uh, indicating that Gore actually had a bit of a lead uh, in in a lot of areas. Not so, a huge lead, not a huge a lead. lead, but a lead, a lead enough of a lead to bring into question the results that came in later. Right. But then you also had this issue of the hanging chads in Florida. Uh, millions, according to uh, according to some some sources, millions of votes were tossed out. Right. Because you had these ballots that had chads hanging from them, and they could not be tabulated by the machines. And so, rather than uh, tear off the piece of paper, which would almost be seen as like you could argue is a way of tampering, like how could right. you be sure? Like, what if you looked at a uh, a ballot and legitimately they had not made a choice mm-hmm. for a specific issue or a specific position? Or you weren't you start, sure if it just got messed up. Right. Yeah. yeah. You don't know if maybe they started to tear and then they may change their mind. Like, how, how far does the Chad have to hang before you can make the determination, oh, this is what they meant to do? And, of course, I, I wish I had jumped in with this earlier, but when you talked about these millions of hanging Chads, yeah. of course, we're we're saying that the Chad is the is the left. Leftover piece, yeah, the, the perforated piece of paper. Yeah. yeah, it's not you know a bunch of guys in backwards hats and cargo <laughs> shorts right. hanging out. Although I wish it was. Yeah, I wish that the. I mean, yeah, I would expect to see <laughs> see a bunch of Chads hanging out in Florida, but only on spring break. Right. Okay. Um, and no offense, to people named Chad. No, I don't believe in nominative determinism, which is the smart word. For, or the smart phrase for that kind of belief. Yeah, yeah. We were very intelligent about our our short sighted uh, <laughs> about ignorance. our bad jokes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is this is a huge deal though because um, people who naturally people who support um, the Republican candidate at the time, George, who would later become president, George mm-hmm. Bush, uh, they say, well. This is how democracy works, and we have to make sure it's a clean election. And then the uh, Democrats who support Al Gore say, this is not how democracy works, and yes, we need to make sure there's a clean election. Right. These yeah. votes should count. You can't you can't just throw people's votes out the door because you don't you don't like what they say and use the excuse that they don't fit your right. standard. And so this was this was an ugly ugly mess. Very much so. All the way all the way to the Supreme Court. That's how far this ugly mess went. And um, uh, and they eventually made the decision going back to I I love that you put this in earlier. Going back to your comment about tabulating things in a timely manner. Yeah. Ultimately, right, um, the people who, of course, the winning party is going to fight and say there shouldn't be a recount. Yeah. Because they got it done the once. Yeah, you don't – when you think about it, a recount to the winner sounds like you're doing the election all over again. It's like double jeopardy. Yeah, you don't want to – you don't want to run the risk of losing again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you want to – you won. You want to keep moving. And, you know, you can't really blame someone for wanting that. Right. So ultimately the Supreme Court said, OK, like we can't hold up the – uh, the American political process, and they and the Supreme Court ultimately decided the president in that election. Yeah, this was a a big point of contention for lots of people on both sides, really, because yeah. there were people who were very concerned about what this set meant for future elections. Mm-hmm. And so, in two thousand two, the U.S. government actually passed the Help America Vote Act, or HAVA. H-A-V-A, in response to the 2000 Hanging Chad debacle. And their goal was to phase out punch card systems entirely and Mm. use other systems. It didn't – they weren't specific in saying you have to move to electronic voting machines, but just let's not have this happen again because that was not pleasant. 
And so uh, a lot of regions did opt to go with electronic voting machines. And in 2002, the first state to use DRE machines statewide, it is mandated at a state level, is Georgia. Yeah, look at us. Take that. Yeah, we're, we're first in something. <laughs> oh, um, we're first in several things, but yeah. this is one of the good ones. Yeah, arguably. Yeah. Arguably. Um, so it was interesting to see that Georgia was dis- was taking a leadership position in innovation in this way. But uh, we should point out that in most states, uh, electronic voting machines are not the only way you vote. In fact, in most states, there's some sort of combination of different voting sure. methodologies. Uh, some states, you are, are you still mail in your vote. You mm-hmm. don't even go to a polling mm-hmm. place because uh, those states are known for having uh, low populations dispersed across a wide area. And sure. it's hard to make a journey all the way to a place where you can go and cast a vote. Especially depending on the season, if there's inclement weather in a place like Alaska. Yeah. You know, how you, how can you realistically expect someone to travel all the way in? And then, you know, also the reason we have to depend on some hybrid systems is because we may have, um, veterans or state level officials, people working for the government that are stationed abroad, mm-hmm. we might have people who are living abroad for some reason or another. But if it's a legitimate reason, I guarantee you they want to vote. Sure. Uh, usually against having their foreign income tax yes. at U.S. rates. Yeah. But but then there are you know there are multiple people who, for one extenuating circumstance or another, need to send a vote. Can't be physically at the machine. Right. So overall, it's good for us to have this mix, right? Right. And and uh, you know again, for a lot of places, it's. It was not so much that we have to move to electronic voting machines. We just had to move off of punch cards. Um, so one of the other th- sad things about Georgia, though, is that uh, in a lot of areas, the machines being used are essentially the same ones that were launched in 2002. Which means we have early adopter syndrome. Yeah, well, we also have the the problem that a lot of people have when they get into PCs for the first time, which is that they realize they have to upgrade every few years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have not done that in a lot of states, including Georgia. And it, this also comes into play with the idea of, of the expense, right? You have to pay to get those new systems in, and that means you have to allocate taxpayer money to do that. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, Ben, but um, a lot of taxpayers aren't keen on the whole idea of paying more tax. Right. Uh, which means that if you aren't paying more tax, then you have to take money away from something else in order to pay for the electronic voting machines. And it's it's hard to make that a politically positive move. It, it yeah. is difficult to justify that because there's so many different interested parties. And if you were to say, hey, uh, this group over here, I know that we typically budget a certain amount every year for you guys, but we're going to decrease that budget a little bit this next year so that we can put that toward electronic voting machines. Uh-huh. And then that group says, why are you punishing us? Um and I'm not I'm not trying to pass judgment here. I understand like there's it's just it's a difficult political game to play. And then we have to also ask, you know, what private industry is involved with this? Yeah. So I'm just going to I'm just going to I don't want to go I know we'll get into it later, but I do want to point out, you know, when we're asking that question or when we're bringing up the point of how difficult it is to ask taxpayers to pay more in tax yeah. so that these machines can be serviced. Yeah. The government's not paying itself to do it. In the case of Georgia, they're paying someone called Premier Election Solutions. 
Yeah, yeah. Just good. I'm pretty just sure Premier Electric Solutions used to be Diebold Election Solutions. <laughs> um, and we'll get into Diebold in a minute. Yeah. So over the next several years from 2002 on to today, various security experts and civil rights groups have been challenging the use of DRE systems in elections for various reasons. Yeah. Uh, in 2012, issues with the election in New York City were so bad that in 2013, the city would actually pull 5,100 lever voting machines out of storage to use instead of electronic voting machines. Sheesh. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing they kept them, huh? Yeah. So whoever was in charge of keeping all that old stuff, I'm, I'm sure you listened to tech stuff and, hey, you're no longer a hoarder. Yeah, now you're a, a patriot. Yeah. Uh, so what are some of the advantages? Okay, before we yeah. get into all the the criticisms, and then we're going to also address the fear of uh, the 2016 uh, election being hacked, because that has been a, in the news for a while. Yeah. Let's talk about what are some of the good things about electronic sure. voting. Well, first of off, uh, speed is huge, right? Like you can you can uh, collect and tabulate votes faster through this method than through any other method. And assuming that everything is working the way it's supposed to, mm-hmm. then you know you've got a really accurate result, and you can very quickly proclaim a winner in whatever district you're talking about. So uh, there's very little delay between the end of voting and declaring who the winner is using those methodologies because you don't have to go through any laborious process to tabulate the votes. And that's inarguable. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. it's, it's like any other elect- computer program. You know, you typically, unless you're talking about a, a computer whose processor is just l- laboring under way too much work, you get results very quickly. Uh, another is that there are no moving parts in the actual voting mechanism. An electronic voting mechanism, tr- purely electronic, we're not talking about electromechanical, you don't have moving parts, so that means they don't wear down over time physically. Uh, that being said, you can still have errors pop up in electronic voting machines. You can have operational errors uh Things can crash. It's a computer program. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure all of us out there have had experiences where inexplicably a computer has crashed or, in my case, failed to connect to the Wi-Fi. Uh, and so that is still an issue. But because there are no moving parts, you don't have to worry about the physical wear and tear the way you would with those uh, mechanical devices. But wait, as Billy Mays was wont to say, there's more. Yeah, so one of the big advantages of electronic voting machines, and I think this is a really important one, is they are customizable so that citizens are able to, more citizens can participate in the voting process. For example, if you have people who have visual impairments, like they can see, but they might have trouble reading something that's in small print, because it's on an electronic screen, most of the time you have an option for a large print version. But uh, beyond that, if you have someone who has a complete visual impairment, perhaps they're blind or, or they're effectively blind, then you can have audio versions as well. So it's an you can't really do that with mechanical ones, right? Like you can't magically make the print on a series of uh, levers sure. larger. Right. But with a screen, you can do that. So it, it creates more accessibility for a larger number of people who want to participate in the system. However... Not all electronic voting machines are created equally. No. Um, okay. I, I wish you guys could see this in the studio. I just did president hand really yeah, well. You get, yeah, <laughs> with the, the thumb slightly extended and the fist 
clenched and then you do all your gestures. You know why you do it that way, right? So because you're not pointing at Exactly, people. because if you point, then it almost feels like an accusation. <laughs> right. They train you. President 101, you get yeah, trained. First, first Don't day. point. Don't point. Um, so your basic DRE is just a computer, right? So it records uh-huh. votes cast on the device. Uh, typically, you would use – here in Georgia, you tend to get like a card, an activation card mm-hmm. that you plug into almost like a little disk drive. Yeah. And then you can make your votes and then you are told to remove the card at the end of it and then you turn it back into somebody, and a, a volunteer mm-hmm. at your little polling place. Like Dirty Jimmy. Yeah. I'm kidding. Dirty I Jimmy, the volunteer at, at Ben's polling place. <laughs> I like to point out that DeKalb County has much uh, more respectable volunteers at their polling centers. <laughs> Along um, with free sassafras. <laughs> yeah, you get a little bit of that, some uh, sarsaparilla. Sarsaparilla um, is actually what I was thinking of. I'm just not fit for Fulton County. It's fair. I mean, it's But yeah, fair. there are differences. Ben and I will conclude part one of the scary world of EVMs in just a moment. But first, another quick break. So you got lots of different companies that make these, right? Sure. There's no standard across them. And in fact, that ends up causing an issue. Uh, But uh, once you make those selections on your computer screen, you get kind of too broad um, types of DREs. In one type, it's all recorded just electronically. So all you have is the electri- electronic record mm-hmm. of the votes. In the other one, you have some sort of paper trail. Uh, now, the paper trail ones, you can even divide again because there's some where you have a paper trail, but there's no way for the voter to verify that the vote recorded on paper reflects their specific choices. Mm-hmm. So Ben, I'm going to give you an example. All right, let's say let's 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 go back in time. And uh you are picking between um oh, let's say uh Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. All right. You've got you got your choices of Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, but but back in this time period, this alternate history, they do have electronic voting machines. Oh, okay. Wrap your mind around that. I'm wrapped. So so there you are. You're looking at Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, and you being a huge fan of Reagan's Hollywood career. Uh-huh. You've decided you're going to support Mr. Reagan and not Mr. Carter, uh-huh. the Georgian native. Right, so I'm going against the home team. Yeah, you're going against the home team. And this is one of those cases where you are very pleased that your your vote is secret. <laughs> yeah, because my love of Westerns compels me <laughs> yes. to vote my cinematic and, and chimpanzees. conscience. And, and chimpanzees. chimpanzees. So, okay, yeah. Because so, bedtime for Bonzo or whatever it was. So secret vote. And yeah, secret I'm, vote. I'm like and for you, the Gipper. You choose, you choose the Gipper. You choose Ronald Reagan. And uh, and in the distance, you hear, which Indicates that indeed the printer has printed out the lines uh, that are supposed to reflect your vote, but you are not able to see the piece of paper. So for all you know, the piece of paper actually says Jimmy Carter was the one you voted on. And so while the the review screen that you get says you picked Ronald Reagan, electronically it records that vote as a vote for Jimmy Carter, and on the paper it says it's a vote for Jimmy Carter. And since you can't see the paper, you can't say, 
hey, wait a minute. That's not who I voted for. I let down the Gipper. You well, you didn't because you voted. You did everything you could. <laughs> now there's also the voter verifiable paper trail, and the voter right. verifiable paper trail means that you would be able to see the paper representation of your vote before you leave the precinct. Yeah. So in that case, you vote for Ronald Reagan. Piece of paper prints out. It says you voted for Ronald Reagan. Now I should add. There's still the possibility that electronically it flips your vote. But for that to happen and for it to essentially flip back at some point, for it to purport that you have voted what you thought you were voting for, that makes – let me put it this way, Jonathan. Yeah. And I know that we are going to go back and forth on some of this, and that's fine. But that's a very – that's a difficult mistake to make. In other words, that's not a mistake. That's something someone did on purpose. It seems more plausible that it, it would be like something that something that involves those points mm-hmm. occurring. Uh, register electronically. Let's say I do vote for Big Gip, uh, and then have the verifiable paper trail come out says, "Hey, congratulations, you voted Ronnie." But then have the machine somehow register that as a vote for an opposing candidate. No, that, that would I would argue that I can't think of a scenario where you could innocently do that, right? Because you have to remember that the way these systems tend to work is that you get a verification screen at the end that says, "Hey, is this what you wanted?" before you actually cast your vote, right? Right. So that electronic screen is going to in theory, reflect what you actually chose. And if you look down, you're like, yep, there's Ronald Reagan. That's who I picked. Mm -hmm. And then the piece of paper says, after you cast your vote, the piece of paper prints out and it says Ronald Reagan. Like, yep, that's who I picked. But electronically, it says Jimmy Carter. I say something hinky has gone on and it 99.99999% sure that it was somebody doing that on purpose. You know, I've got to confess, I'm I'm surprised that you're, I, I'm surprised that you're drawing the same conclusion so quickly because you're very, um, the, the way that you evaluate situations and you guys, you guys know Jonathan, you listen to the show, uh, is to go through all of these facts. So to hear you say something with this certitude, yeah. uh, is, is pretty significant. Well, and, and it's because I understand the technology, right? Like if you've, if you've designed a system, first of all, in order to get any electronic voting system in place, it has to go through lots of different third party testing to make sure that it actually works. Right. right. Um, so it, it, for it to pass all those tests and then magically not work properly on election day tells me some, someone has interfered, whether it was someone on the actual uh, manufacturing side, like someone on the software side for the company that made the m- voting machine or some other third party actor who has infected a machine with malicious code to change votes on the electronic level. The whole point of this, though, is that if you have a paper trail, mm-hmm. especially a voter verifiable paper trail, that's the most important kind. Yeah. Then you have something against which you can perform an audit after an election. So the election's over. The results are in. And then a lot of states, not all, but a lot of states require a post-election audit where they will compare the electronic results against a hard copy of the results. If it's a voter verifiable hard copy, then theoretically every single voter had the opportunity to see that his or her vote was actually recorded as intended. And that means that if there is a disparity, 
then you could bring that up and say, hey, we're going through this and there seems to be some significant differences between the electronic copy and what's on the hard copy. Right. Like, uh, like, hey, some of us voted for Hillary Clinton, some vote for Donald Trump and a couple for some third party candidates. But every vote here is for Gary Busey. Yeah. <laughs> what gives? Yeah. That. <laughs> That's a terrifying future that I had never ever considered. Oh man! But, but in the in the Reagan Jimmy Carter example we gave before, you could say, well, according to this paper copy, this one person who happens to be Ben, but they don't know that because voter uh, identity is very important. We want to keep that yeah, anonymous. And I go in disguise based on our earlier series about how to use the internet and <laughs> without being caught. Right. So so Ben, <laughs> they don't know it's Ben, but they look and they see this voter record that right. says. This person voted for Ronald Reagan, but electronically it says Jimmy Carter. Something is wrong. And, and then yeah, and there great. could be a better investigation. Yeah, it's great to have that. But uh, we'll go more into why that's not working everywhere in just a second. So this kind of brings us into those concerns more formally. We've mm-hmm. already kind of addressed a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if your goal is to make voting and tabulation easy and efficient, then if everything's working properly, there's no tampering involved, there's no bias that's been introduced either unconsciously or purposefully, mm-hmm. then it's a beautiful world. And beautiful. You get, Bellissima. You, you, get that, you get those votes in, you, you're done with it, and it, you get the winner and the loser can be gracious and defeat and all that wonderful stuff. <laughs> um, but it's really hard to make sure that your vote is being counted the way you want it. So... First of all, there are a lot of electronic voting machines that have no corresponding paper trail at all. Right. So quite a few. let's say let's say that again, uh, Ben, you voted for Reagan and the votes come in and they announce the results for Georgia. And it's like ninety seven point three percent of voters voted for Jimmy Carter. Well, you don't know. If you were in that small percentage that didn't vote for Carter, you would have no way of knowing. You're one right. person. I would have nothing to refer to uh, except perhaps uh, circumstantial evidence based on exit polls yeah. or pre-voting polls. Right. So I could say, what the heck happened? There were, you know, 55 percent of us last week. We're gonna. Where did, we, did we all just not go? Was did I we the all only? forget about King's Row bedtime for Bonzo? I told you bedtime for Bonzo. <laughs> I knew that was the chump one. I, and I don't have a computer in front of me. I was purely for memory. That's just from. Uh, that's yeah. That's just because you care. Yeah, it's because I care. Uh, but yeah, that's that's a great point. So aside from that, there would be no um, certainly nothing with a legal basis. Right. No, no legal leg to stand on. Yeah. So. Uh, that would be problematic. The only th- thing that would make you really suspicious if they said 100% of all Georgia voters <laughs> supported Jimmy Carter and you'd think, I'm pretty sure I didn't. <laughs> that, yeah. But, you know, any system where someone's going to do tampering, um, you would figure they'd be smart enough not to make it uh, so noticeable that there would be an investigation to follow, right? Like mm. your whole goal is to do this clandestinely and not get caught. So if you're doing that and you're being careful, you would want to design a system where it's not uh, a blowout for a state where it might have been close right. up, leading up to the election. Uh, so if there is no corresponding paper trail, then you don't you have nothing to audit against. 
All you have is the electronic copies, and as we know, you can alter electronic copies. Now, it's in the best interest of all the companies that create these electronic voting machines to be as secure as possible. Unfortunately, that never happens. Right. Uh, security on electronic voting machines is a joke. It's terrible. As a matter of fact, uh, Wired released a pretty... Uh Pretty scary article, yeah. uh, which you you've probably already you're already aware of it. Um, back in August of 2016, yes. Title being America's electronic voting machines are scarily easy targets. Yeah. Hey Ben. Hey Jonathan. So um, you and I kept talking after uh, this bit that we just stopped just yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. a while. It's true. So uh, what happened, ladies and gentlemen, is that when we finished talking, we stepped outside to look and see how long we had been talking because we don't currently have a producer sitting at our desk uh, mm-hmm. to to maintain the recording just because of we got lots of stuff. We got we got lots of things going on. The thoughts and, and jokes and facts. And got a lot of ins, got a lot of outs, uh-huh. you know, got yeah. a lot of big Lebowskis happening. Uh-huh. And um, so it turned out we had been recording for almost two hours, and we realized that's probably too long for a single episode. So we're going to conclude <laughs> part one here. But next week we're going to pick up with part two right where we left off. we got a lot more to say. So Ben will be back in part two because he never left. And... That wraps up this part one of the two-part series about electronic voting machines. On Monday, we will listen to part two, and we will get the conclusion where Ben and I are talking all about the issues around electronic voting and what we can do to make sure that the process remains intact, that we don't lose confidence in it. Because if we lose confidence in the process then democracy itself sort of falls apart, right? If you don't trust that the votes you are casting are being counted, then you don't have any trust that the people who are representing you are actually representing you, that the game is fixed, and that is a problem. But we'll listen to that part two next week. I hope you guys are well, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.